Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Last month, a Golden Class container ship, one of the biggest in the world, ran aground in the Suez Canal, blocking traffic through one of the busiest maritime arteries in the world. Images of the ship, the Ever Given, dominated the news cycle in the US and UK for nearly two weeks, fueled by speculation about what went wrong and what effects a prolonged closure of the Suez might have on global trade. Mark Twain actually witnessed the construction of the Suez Canal during his 1867 Quaker City cruise through the Holy Land. His observations from this excursion provided the basis for the American Vandal Lecture Tour and the comic travel narrative Innocence Abroad, one of the best-selling books of the 19th century. His fascination with maritime transport dates back even further, of course, to his days as a riverboat pilot, and would remain evident in his later works, notably his journal of his 1895 worldwide lecture tour following the equator. Very few popular 19th century Anglophone authors were so well positioned to witness and comment upon the Victorian phase of globalization, a complex system of colonial competition and collaboration, including military, commercial, diplomatic, and missionary forces, sometimes in the same persons. This is among the backstories for Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula, published last year by Verso Books. In this episode, I talked to Lale Khalili about her book, The Grounding of the Ever Given and the Historical Context of the Construction of the Suez Canal. Dr. Khalili is Professor of International Politics at Queen Mary University of London, Prior to sinews of war and trade, she has worked extensively on prisons and policing, insurgency and counterinsurgency, refugees and remembrance in the Arab world. For more about her publications, as well as a bibliography of works discussed in this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Suez Canal. There are so many things to commend about your book. Had you confined yourself to the more conventional scholarly methods, it would still be an extraordinary work because you've engaged with archives about the logistical and technological development of the business and regulation of shipping, the financialization of shipping routes and the labor movements, both on board and in port cities. And these archives are revelatory and likely would be even if you never booked passage on a cargo ship. But you did. And for me, at least, that fieldwork added a whole other layer to the narrative, which made it more compelling. And I'm sure the archive spoke to you differently by virtue of your travels and as I expected, recent current events. And so that's where I wanted to start. How was your engagement with the grounding of the ever given in the Suez Canal last month, informed by your experience both researching and traveling aboard ships that were very much like it. And which went through the Suez Canal. So Yeah, um, absolutely. First of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's kind of fun to talk about this in a podcast that has a very specific sort of thematic set of interests rather than it's kind of a generalized conversation. Okay, so when the ship grounded in the Suez Canal, the first thing that I felt was a sense of kinship with all the people that were on board. And I was a little bit wistful wishing that I could be on board because I thought that that would be an extraordinary moment to actually observe the workings of 
of these infrastructures because part of the mythology of shipping maritime transport today is of a kind of a frictionless form of trade that just slides through these arteries and works efficiently and works profitably and you know all of those buzzwords of late capitalism and of course what I really wanted to show was in fact where the points of friction were uh, everything from, as you, you mentioned, labor, uh, processes of financialization. I talk about the way that uh, there are these fantasies around sort of software and the way they work. And also just the availability of information. I think part of the, the reason that the Ever Given's grounding became this incredibly hyped up media event was because anybody with a connection to internet could go online and go to the Vessel Finder website and enter Ever Given and look at not only where whether it was still stuck or not, but at what angle it was stuck. That degree of availability of information is in part what explained that the reason that Ever Given ended up being this major media event and, and was memeified, which I also thought found yeah. interesting because there mm -hmm. had been another ship grounding in 2004, I believe, of a tanker in the Suez Canal. And that one didn't get as much attention. I think in mm -hmm. part because it, it didn't become a social media event. And so I right. think that factor, but also, of course, the timing of it coming right after COVID, right after a moment in which the narrative around this is that everything has been suspended. Of course, everything hadn't been suspended. And that's part of the reason why both in Europe and in the US, among the people that died from COVID, those disproportionately represented were delivery drivers, right? Commerce continued. So, so none of that was suspended. But the narrative was that COVID has suspended commerce. And this suddenly, you know, now everything was flowing, but oops, a ship blocks the flow again. And so there was some anxiety about COVID that had dared not speak its name, which was coming out in this moment as well. And I think that that what made it interesting. For me personally, what was really amazing about it, as I said, I felt wistful that I wasn't on the ship because I wanted to see how it worked out. Because when I went down, I went on a couple of ships down the Suez Canal twice in 2015 and a year and a half later in 2016, the process of crossing the Suez Canal had been machine smooth. Ships convoy at the north, ships convoy at the south, you enter the mouth of the Suez Canal, and at some stage, quite early on, experienced Suez pilots come on board to help the captain navigate this incredibly complex and difficult waterway. It's not as complex and difficult as Panama Canal, which is locks, but it's still, you have to know where you're going, you have to know the depth, etc., etc. So there was a lot about this that could have gone wrong when I was on the ship, and it didn't. The ship right went right through and arrived at the other end, and it was all fine. For me, what was interesting was how this time things went wrong and there, for the grace of God, go the seafarers. I think you shared on Twitter last week something CNN had created, a kind of gamification of the Suez Canal, where you can try to guide a ship through accounting for some of the factors, depth, rudder angle, speed, that kind of thing. And as you pointed out, the game doesn't even factor in many of the things captains and pilots are thinking about, like wind, which was clearly a factor in the Ever Given's grounding. Even so, the game was very difficult. I tried it several times and failed spectacularly on each of them. I would say purely because of reading your book last year, as soon as I became aware of the blockage, I started thinking about the seafarers, not just aboard the Ever Given, but also on the ships whose passage was going to be disrupted, and how the common labor practices in this environment don't prepare or account for these kinds of exigencies. 
I, I, yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And I certainly felt that sense of sympathy for the seafarers quite intensely. Right now, even, even as we speak, the ship is still uh, sitting in the Great Bitter Lake a week or so after having been released. Because, of course, the Egyptian government wants to investigate what had gone wrong, and it essentially has held the ship there. There was also, in the first few days, some technical divers diving to check to make sure the hull of the ship was okay. Because as somebody said to me today, essentially, if you imagine what had happened to Ever Given was that it had been suspended from the two sides of the canal, and its bottom was bowing out. And so they really wanted to check and make sure that it was okay. The, the ship was essentially stuck for a week. Now it's been in the Suez Canal for another week. I suspect it's not going to be very easy for the seafarers that were on board those ships to have gotten off. The ship is supposed to have arrived in Rotterdam on the 31st of March. It's now five days later. I suspect that Rotterdam being one of the places where seafarers change ships, that would have probably possibly some of them might have come off the ship to go home. And so now they can and so yet yeah, that really made me worry about it. But also my sense is that given the particularities of global trade today, the person who's going to end up getting blamed for this is probably going to end up being the captain, even if this was, quote unquote, an act of God, which insurance companies often invoke in order to not to pay out insurance. Again, that is also a concern. And I'm still thinking about it. And I'm wondering whether any of the crew members, uh, any of the seafarers that are on board the ship will eventually come out and give interviews and and be talked to about this, because I think that their viewpoint is going to be really quite crucial. One of the things I think is most interesting about this event is the way in which it renders visible that which we are accustomed to being invisible. And that seemed like one of the challenges and the goals of your book was to take this thing that I think many of us intuitively know that maritime trade is what makes the late capital globalist economy go, but we rarely think about what the stakes are of how the goods that we consume get from place to place. Mm -hmm. And this event building on the project that you were doing seems to make visible aspects of that maritime commerce, we oftentimes, I think, probably prefer, particularly in the global north, not to think about. I think that's definitely spot on. I mean, if you also think about it, the ports have shifted out of cities, right? In Marseille, the commercial port left the Vieux-Port, ended up going further north. And then from there, it ended up going 40 miles out. In New York, you had the port shifting, for example, from Red Hook over to New Jersey and to the tip of New Jersey, where it's really hard to come by. Although if you're on the train, you can see that cranes going by if you're going from New Jersey to New York. In London, the harbor shifted from the East India Basin and the West India Basin, and it shifted all the way out to the, to the Thames Estuary, or even further up the coast. And so uh, in all of these places, the port has shifted. I mean, in part, that has been in order to accommodate ever largening ships, uh, tankers and container ships. In part, it is because they need more warehouse space now that they use containers everywhere. But also, in part, this is to separate the ports out from the cities, because port workers have been some of the most interesting 
intransigent populations, uh, among worker populations, and not always great politics. In London, for example, port workers actually marched on behalf of the river of blood kind of racist. But they have been an intransigent population. And if they stop work, they do bring global trade to a halt. And so they hold political leverage in a way a lot of other workers don't necessarily in the same to the same uh, degree to the same extent and in the same with the same degree of urgency. And so I think shifting the ports out of cities has also been fortuitous in, in this way that separates out the workers from a population that could support them. All of those things obviously has made trade invisible. And then of course, processes of securitization has been really significant and have intensified since 2001. And the US can dictate those processes of securitization to all the ports in all sorts of other places. So you see a lot more barbed wire fences, you see a lot more walls, you see a lot more security checkpoints. The only ports I've been to where you can get fairly close-ish in the US to the actual births, although the births themselves are behind gates, but you can still get fairly close by, is LA Long Beach port, which is quite astonishing given that that's the largest port in the US. But it's also a car culture, right? So you wouldn't be able to walk around there. That to me is fascinating. The process of desecuritization has intensified and exacerbated that. And so we don't see ships. And so this breakdown has brought the ships and global maritime trade and its complexities into our living room. And I think it's quite funny because people make fun of Insta experts, but I have I have a soft spot for people who are autodidacts and so who do go off and do read a little bit about this and try to understand what has happened and try to for sort of figure out, sort out the complexities of the situation. And so I think to me, you know, people going and looking at vessel finder, people looking at what percentage of global trade goes through the Suez Canal or what might be on board those ships or all of those things are really fascinating things that have suddenly become really quite visible to the public, particularly in Europe, where we're, you know, obviously a lot of the traffic that is going through Suez is ending up, is destined for Europe. So there's been a lot of questioning about that, which I find actually quite interesting, quite useful. It's been a moment, it's been a learning moment for all of us. A teaching moment for all of us. That, that's how these conversations extend beyond the academy, right? Is when people get interested in events like this, they, they find tools and means by which to explore the questions that they have. And I remember in 2007, 2008, and, and thereafter, the container ship became one of the symbols that was used to signify the spiraling of the global financial crisis. And so oftentimes in, in documentaries, you would have a panning shot of one of the ports or, you, or a panning shot of a, a cargo ship, but never was that really explored in more detail, except here is a sort of symbol of our interconnectedness. Here is a symbol of globalization, but let's not actually get into the details. So you published a, an editorial in the Washington Post a week ago, and listeners will be able to find a link to it on the episode homepage. And you closed the piece by saying, the 2021 blockage of the Suez Canal, combined with the effects of the pandemic, may precipitate a reckoning in how mar maritime transport operates. I know it's hard in a limited space allotted for an op-ed to cover all the ground you think deserves to be covered. And also the inclination is not to speculate wildly in the pages of a mass market publication like the Post. But I was hoping you might expand on your thinking 
at the end of that editorial? What is it that needs reckoning with? What might that reckoning look like? What are the kinds of changes to the status quo of maritime transport that you are looking for as we become maybe more vigilant coming out of this new story? So there, there are two kinds of elements that I think would be really great if coming out of this, there's at least some attention paid to. So the first one is this ever enlarging size of ship. This process of ships becoming bigger is, of course, deeply profitable for the shipping companies because it allows them to take advantage of economies of scale. For example, when they go along wrong, longer routes, when they're carrying goods, they can carry a lot more goods if they want to. The problem with that is, however, aside from the fact that such a large ship probably produces a lot more air pollution, etc. It's also that the ships getting bigger and bigger also requires public investment in making public infrastructures like ports, like cranes, like canals, like channels that go into ports, because a lot of these channels constantly have to be dredged in order to be able to accommodate these ever deepening drafts of ships. All of those things come from public investment. So in a sense, you have shipping companies that actually an OECD study shows pay something like 7% in taxes. I mean, ridiculously low taxes in what they're doing, getting bigger and bigger, therefore intensifying their profit-making processes. And we, the public, have to pay for the expansion of those publicly held infrastructures that allow for these ships to come in, to go, to travel. So that's the first thing. But there's a more immediate and I think in some ways important transformation that needs to be done to the process of shipping. And I'm not the only one who said it. And, and this has been said now for decades. It's not something new. Is that the structure of shipping is dependent on something called flags of convenience. And flags of convenience, which is what International Transport Workers Federation calls open registries, are essentially an offshoring device, right? We know what offshore havens are. They allow for companies to go off and register their companies somewhere else in order to avoid paying taxes taxes, essentially, but also in order to avoid accountability on a number of issues, in order to be able to hide ownership lines and structures. I think that's really important, especially if you have sort of ill-begotten goods, kleptocratic sons and daughters tend to use these shell companies quite extensively or corrupt business owners. Everybody from Trump on down have used these shell company formats in order to be able to hide their profits. In addition to that, many of these offshore registrations also allow avoidance of regulations around labor and environmental stuff. And so, and, and this is particularly relevant for open registries or for flags of convenience. There has been a long conversation about this. One of the things that I track is the way that these uh, flags of convenience generate issues and problems around lots of things. I'm writing a paper right now about abandoned seafarers. Abandoned seafarers are seafarers on ships where the owners decide that they have received payment for one particular trip. They often have rust buckets. They, you know, they have these really old kind of crappy ships that they can get rid of. And then they declare bankruptcy and they refuse to pay the wages of the seafarers. And there are, believe it or not, tens of thousands of abandoned seafarers. At this very moment as we speak, there are hundreds of them in a day database that the ILO maintains. And so the, these abandoned seafarers, when you go to that ILO database and you do a little bit of calculation, it becomes clear that the number one flag under which seafarers are abandoned is the Panamanian flag. What that shows in a way is the extent to which these flags of convenience are used to mistreat workers. Now, ever given was operated by a Taiwanese company. The ship was owned by a Japanese company, but the ship was flagged to Panama. Last summer, 
a ship ground down on these incredibly eco-sensitive reefs in Mauritius, and the fuel from the ship leaked on onto the reefs. The Mauritian people had to come and clean up the, their own beaches, obviously, because Mauritius is not exactly one of the richest countries in the world with all the resources. And that ship was also flagged to Panama. So we're seeing in a span of a year, these accidents that are waiting to happen, and who's going to be responsible for them? Who's going to pay for those accidents? And, and who's going to pay for, for example, the abandoned seafarers' wages who have worked for months and then have to settle for a percentage of what they had worked for because they sailed under a flag of convenience? And so what I'm hoping that that reckoning comes about. Now, there are particular moments in world history where there's a lot of pressure, public pressure put on governments in order to force these kinds of things. And this might not necessarily be the moment for flags of convenience, but I was noticing that apparently the Biden administration is suggesting that there should be a push towards a global minimum tax for corporations in order to prevent corporations essentially forum shopping, if you will, for wherever they can go that has the lowest corporate tax and avoid paying taxes in their home countries. If there's such a legislation that pushes towards more accountability and transparency in corporate ownership, I suspect that there can also be pressure put on shipping companies about these flags of convenience. If the EU and the US tomorrow said that no flag of convenience could touch one of their main ports, of course, that would potentially be uh, quite important. But also if they went further and they persuaded many of the ports elsewhere in the world, Global South, China, to also take on this could potentially have transformative effects. It's a collective actor problem. It requires everybody to buy in. And one of the interesting things about flags of convenience is that they tend to be very small states. Some of them landlocked, actually. Mongolia has a flag of convenience. Moldova has a flag of convenience. And many of them are actually close allies of the US, interestingly. And their start was in places which were close allies of clients, colonies of the US, if you will. And so in some ways, that also militates against the possibility of this happening, because it's a source of income for these flag-issuing countries. And so there's going to have to be some form of collective action on this. And it will be interesting to see what that might be. We certainly need precedents for that form of geopolitical collective action. And so yes. it is wonderful to think about the, the ways in which shipping might provide a sort of example, not just of why that kind of diplomacy is necessary, but also as we move into a phase where more and more of it is going to be needed, particularly to combat climate change. This could be a way to start that process and build those coalitions. Um, Something about shipping makes that slightly more difficult as well, because for regular mm -hmm. corporations, you know, the big ones um, often are public, right? So they're being traded mm -hmm. on stock markets. And so for that reason, they're audited, they're looked after, and they have to adhere to some minimum set of rules of the stock markets where they are traded on. So whether that's New York Stock Exchange or FTSE or whatever, what is really significant and interesting about shipping companies is that they're either privately owned, often within families, or they are state-owned enterprises, which makes them that much more intransigent and difficult to also control because there's not even that minimum sort of level of having to respond to a stock market or the securities exchange or whatever. That, to me, is also another factor that plays into this. And it's something that I really want to study and understand because there's obviously a his historical reason for why shipping companies were family-owned. But the extent to which that continues to be the case, for example, the top three shipping companies in Europe are all family-owned. And 
the biggest owners actually of tankers are Norwegian and Greek families that they charter to everybody else. Why is that? Obviously, it doesn't lend itself to great regulation. So there has to be a way to address that as well, where we're not dependent on the stock market to regulate the corporations as we are with publicly traded companies. One of the most interesting parts of your book was when you got into the financialization, the speculation and shipping routes. And I expected with the ever given sort of shutting down the Suez Canal that one of the things that the sort of journalistic deep dives would do would be to get into the financial apparatus and what is being disrupted, how are investors responding. But when I went looking for that stuff, mm. for analysis of the Baltic Dry Index, for instance, or Shanghai, I found so little, yeah. at least in mainstream publications, even in mainstream publications that are geared at financial markets like Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal, right? And I was shocked that that aspect of this was not getting covered. There must have been some sort of crisis around the investment and the financial markets. And I could find no analysis, no significant unwinding of that aspect of things, which speaks to what you're, you're saying, that this is a market that is incredibly dark. But it's also a market that is that operates entirely at the behest of and for those private right. owners of these shipping companies. And so there isn't a huge financialization process around this. But it's also, but that's also interesting because it's not used quite to the same extent. For example, derivatives around shipping and options around shipping are not used to the same extent as derivatives and options around commodities, for example, oil, right? right. At the moment still, it's it seems to me that the, the vast majority of those financial instruments, which do affect the pricing of the roots and do have a major feedback effect as Donald McKenzie, the great economic sociologist right. has showed us. There's these financial instruments have a sort of a loop back effect, but um, it's still they're primarily used as a way to for, for these shipping companies to hedge against possibilities of mm -hmm. losing money in their own business rather than using it as a further instrument for speculation as it's become the case, for example, with a lot of commodities trading. That might also partially explain why there has been less interest in this from the really fantastic stalwarts like Bloomberg and FD, who tend to be the ones that I read in order to understand what is going on in the business because um uh, was it chomsky who said that if you really want to understand how these businesses operate you have to go and read these guys because these guys are going to be incredibly honest because mm -hmm. they are reporting to people who need good information and so yeah i do read my fd and i do read my bloomberg you know religiously in order to understand these kinds of things and that might have been why they haven't talked about it i also think that in this particular instance this may have, you know, affected a little bit hedging around the route, um, that particular route. Um, and that route is one of the, you know, one of the most important routes. I think the investors really held their nerve in part because I think they knew that this was going to be cleared fairly quickly. I mean, you did see how amazingly fast salvage companies were mobilized. Uh, support was mobilized in order to dig the ship out. Scientists were brought over. Engineers were brought over. People were, the price of oil went up a little bit, but not really. Mark, the market was already quite soft. And in terms of these other futures instruments, obviously they take time for them to function. And so I think they weren't necessarily called in, if you will. So I think that that also was part mm -hmm. of the reason why we didn't hear much about it. It might be that in time we will. You know, these kinds of things tend to have yeah. after echoes. In that immediate moment, I think people were just much more interested about the cargo that was sitting in the Mediterranean or in the Gulf of Suez mm -hmm. hoping to cross rather than the, the financial instruments. But again, as I said, that might come in time.
the fact that the financial media were to some extent quiet also means that they weren't fueling a crisis, a speculative bubble. The, the decision not to run those stories, not to seek out those stories, not to ask those questions is in some ways protecting those markets. Uh, you brought up serendipitously, you brought up Mauritius. And there, as we sort of move from talking about the, the contemporary to thinking about the, the history that underlies this contemporary, there's a moment in Twain's travel narrative that I wanted to, to explore with you. It, the travel narrative is called Following the Equator, and it's a massive 700-page recounting of Twain's worldwide lecture tour. It's arguably the document that uh, narrates his conversion to anti-imperialism. He would start publishing overtly anti-imperialist essays a couple of years later, but there are new and and there are numerous places in Following the Equator where he's identifying with and even rationalizing the actions of British colonists. But there's also a lot of places where he's identifying with and narrating the ill treatment of native peoples. But his allusion to the Suez Canal is, I think, a fascinating one. It comes at the end of a chapter where he's talking about the island of Mauritius off the East African coast. And he quotes from the introduction to what was then a recent British translation of Jacques-Henri Bernadine de Saint-Pierre's novel, Paul and Virginia. And the British translator writes, Mauritius was a flourishing country in former days, for it made then and still makes the best sugar in the world, but the Suez Canal severed it from the world and left it out in the cold. But a big war will temporarily shut up the Suez Canal someday, and the English ships will have to go to India around the Cape of Good Hope again. Then the English will have to have bourbon and will take it. And Twain leaves off the chapter without really unpacking this quotation, but I was hoping you would respond to it. How does it capture the impact and the angst around the Suez Canal? What does it get wrong or right about its predictions? And really, I just wanted to see how somebody so steeped in the context Twain is alluding to, more steeped than Twain himself was, would respond to this. I mean, this I think passage. it's quite interesting because obviously this is speaking to a period of time where Durban uh, was not as significant as sort of an entrepot of global trade as it did become uh, thereafter, and it continues to be today. So, so obviously, Mauritius not being necessarily on, on the route around the Cape of Good Hope made it less of a destination as it had been before when the ships went around the Cape of Good Hope. So there's something of interest in that. But one of the things that was quite striking about that is that, of course, shipping routes do change the fortune of different places. Let me talk about Aden. Aden was colonized in uh, 1839 by the British at the very moment at which the ships of East India Company were converting from sail to steam. There was a need for fortuitously placed coaling harbors, coal bunkering harbors with deep harbors and potential for victualing and watering ships. And so Aden was colonized at that stage. And of course, in the decades that followed, admiralty ships were also converted to steam. And that meant that you had this transformation happening. And then what really made Aden take off as this kind of an imperial or colonial outpost was the opening of the Suez Canal because suddenly then 
before that, loads of ships went the land route. They went up to Suez and then would go overland to Alexandria where other ships in the Mediterranean would pick up those goods and carry them. There was this overland bit in the middle that the Suez Canal ended up coming uh, to circumvent. And when that Suez Canal opened, the fortunes of Alexandria, for example, fell. So that was this great Mediterranean port, which went into slow decline, just as Port Said ended up becoming much more important because Port Said sat at the entrance to the Suez Canal and Alexandria was no longer the port at which, you know, these goods that had traveled overland were being brought. It still functioned as that port for a lot of cotton, Egyptian cotton that was being shipped to Europe, but it no longer was necessarily a way station of that overland route for the British in particular. So I suspect that some of that also happened to Mauritius, that opening of the Suez Canal was enormously important for Aden and one does see Aden uh, take off as a colony, particularly in the latter decades of the 19th century and the early decades of the 20th century. And so that's really interesting. I really actually want to go back and read this because we often think about the Suez Canal as a point of connection and it's opening as that thing which creates new needs, new demands. But every route that is shifted means that some places end up falling off the journey routes uh, of ships that were going to be going there. And so that little comment is absolutely fascinating. And I wish I'd known about it so that I could have used it in this. Because when the Suez Canal was closed because of a war, rather interestingly, the Suez Canal was closed twice, once for by for eight months uh, by the 1956 tripartite attack against Egypt by Israel, Britain, and France, because Gamal Abdel Nasser had nationalized the Suez Canal. And the second time it closed because of the 1967 war and that and, and the 73 war and all the little sort of low intensity conflicts in the Sinai around that time between 67 and 75 during that period Durban became this really important way station for the ships that were rounding the Cape of Good Hope in fact when I was looking up old New York Times uh, you know London Times Washington Post, whatever reports about that particular moment, one of the things that one read was that, and, and I remember this very distinctly, was that one, the price of tea in Britain had increased because the ships were now taking longer to go from Britain's primary tea producers, which are in South Asia. But two, and this was quite, quite striking, was that there was a shortage of beef in Durban because of all the sailors that were arriving and all the ships that were arriving in Durban because of the clo closure of the Suez Canal, all the ships rounding the Cape of Good Hope. And so there was a shortage of beef and so they had to scramble to actually get beef from the plains of South Africa in order to bring them into Durban in order to feed those sailors and those ships and so these kinds of small changes that end up even shifting agriculture patterns in order to deal with changes in routes is something that is is fascinating to follow and would be really interesting to see if you know we know that some of the ships also had already started rerouting around the Cape of Good Hope after the ever given closure so it would be interesting if that had any kind of knock-on effect in places like Durban which which are a very important victualling and bunkering ports even today one of the things that that quote and anticipates in your your book focuses most extensively on a sort of 20th century history seemingly i'd rather you characterize it than i do but sort of surrounding the post-World War II moment, right? The sort of post-colonial moment is this epochal shift that has sort of fascinating repercussions. But the kind of conceit of your book is that trade and war, right? Military 
and commercial interests are deeply interwoven. And what I found so interesting about that quote is that it sort of anticipates this at an earlier phase. Thinking about how the 20th century history that you get into wonderful detail about how it emerges. Twain's most famous trip to the Arabian Peninsula happened while the Suez Canal was under construction in 1867. And uh, he returns there as part of the following the equator tour, uh, but he doesn't spend nearly as much time in the re region. So several scholars, most notably Holton Obenzinger, have talked about how Twain visited Jerusalem and other cities and sites across the region during the period on the cusp of a rapid political and economic disruption. What is happening in that period after uh, the opening of the Suez Canal, leading up to the sort of interbellum, the, the World War II moment and the post-colonial moment, that transforms the Arabian Peninsula from what it was when Twain was there to what it became more familiarly probably for our listeners in, in the 20th century. The, the world that the Suez Canal wrought, it was also the world in which the European powers were really engaged in massive rivalry against one another in the Mediterranean and elsewhere. And so the British and the French actually looked to the Suez Canal as a way to continue their rivalry beyond the Mediterranean. So this canal was built by millions of Egyptian workers, hundreds of thousands of whom are thought to have died in the, in the process of being pressed into labor and digging the canal. But the canal was financed by the British and the French, who were rivals, and yet they collaborated on this imperial venture. Because what the canal did was it opened up Asia and Africa to, to their colonizing process. And so what you see in very rapid transformations following the opening of the canal are these European powers laying claim to many of the countries in East Africa, uh, consolidating their hold over many of the places in Asia, you, uh, you know, the, the French in Indochina, the French in Madagascar, the Italians in Ethiopia, you, you see the Germans arriving in Tanzania, you had rapid development of imperial technologies and incredibly violent, obviously, colonization of the places that were not necessarily colonized beforehand. And at the same time, also rapid construction of other kinds of technologies and infrastructures that can aid in the extraction of the raw material, which was so centrally related to this colonization. And so you see the, the development of railways in Africa and also in India, often going from places where either agricultural products were being produced that were needed or mining products were being extracted. And, and you know, these uh, train routes in many times circumvented, for example, large population centers, because essentially, as uh, Walter Rodney has written, they were just going down to the sea from the mines. And so the infrastructure was intended either to, as it's kind of an extractive conduit or as a vehicle for the movement of troops. Um, and so again, commerce and war were very deeply interrelated in those processes. So you have this intensification of empire. And you also see that this moment ends up becoming the moment at which the European powers intensively begin undermining the Ottoman Empire, because of course, the Ottoman Empire's domain uh, passed on to, through the Levant to the edges of the, the Red Sea edges of the Arabian Peninsula. And so there's this kind of a contestation also going on against the Ottomans in that moment. And then, of course, in rapid progression, 
at the very end of the 19th and the very beginning of the 20th century, the British established protectorates along the Persian Gulf, established protectorate relationships with client emirs in order to ensure that they have a foothold there, because not only were they looking at the maritime route through the Red Sea to India, but they were also looking to the Persian Gulf as a potential also overland route. And it would essentially allow them to flank the Ottomans behind them, right? So there's strategic calculations going on here, which are established around sort of the potential for war fighting later. Then the First World War happens and the Ottoman Empire is ripped apart by the European powers and the mandatory powers are established over the Levant. So the French take over what is today Syria and Lebanon. The uh, British take over what is today Israel-Palestine and Transjordan and uh, to some extent Iraq and they establish their own client regimes in those places. And then of course, all hell breaks loose because the period between the First and the Second World War is perhaps one of, one of the most important for that part of the world, in part because it establishes the roots of the Israeli state to come by the by the British handing over the Balfour Declaration, facilitating the, the transportation of Jewish people from uh, Europe or their migration from Europe to Palestine. But very importantly, in the 1910s, oil is discovered in Iran. In the 19-teens, it is discovered in Iraq. In the 1930s, uh, in quite quick succession, the, it's discovered in Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, uh, eventually Abu Dhabi and Dubai and Oman, suddenly that protectorate of these emirates is not only important for strategic communication, it is also commercially significant. It says something that the Anglo-Iranian oil company, which is today the British Petroleum, uh, but which was a London-based company, ends up becoming this kind of a significant arm of uh, British expansion in that part of the world. It's commercial um, interests end up becoming the interests of the British government, in part because the British government uh, invests in the company and becomes 51% owner of the company. It is fascinating to see that this development first of strategic control over these areas translates really quite handily into this commercial control, morphs back into strategic control. And so in a sense, that fungibility between coercive power and commercial power started way back when, and has continued on since. And for me, it's impossible to prize those apart. The commerce wouldn't happen without the coercion. The coercion would not happen without the commerce, would not find a justification. And, and of course, the corporations were, were right in the middle of this. You know, the corporate sovereignty of the East India Company finds its echoes in the Anglo-Iranian Company, finds its echoes in the company that the Standard Oil of California set up, which became Aramco in Saudi Arabia. And that story of these corporations establishing power in place Places that were either de facto or de jure protectorates of European powers is, in some senses, the beginning of the moment which I talk about in the book. I, I do have a little bit of the 19th century history in there, but really this particular period between the First and the Second World War are quite decisive in shaping the politics of the Arabian Peninsula and, of course, further afield in the Levant as well. One of the, the details that really struck home for me that speaks to exactly what you're describing, one of the details from your book that struck home for me was that up to, and I'm, I'm going to forget the particular year, maybe you'll remember, uh, up to a certain point, 
almost all of the ships that were traveling through the Suez Canal were military ships from yeah. France yeah. and Britain. And then the first sort of cargo ships, and particularly oil tankers, to pass through the British and French governments make a plea to Egypt, essentially, to allow these ships to pass through because they're afraid that Standard Oil will otherwise monopolize the oil trade yeah. in the region. And so the rationale is, if you don't want to become beholden to the Rockefellers, you are going to need to give us better routes for the oil companies coming out. So of I think I think that's that's absolutely right. Although I do have to say that the Suez Canal Company at that stage was a British colonial holding; it wasn't an Egyptian one. And so, in some ways, they didn't even have to plead to the right. Suez Canal. The, the British didn't have to plead to the Suez Canal Company to allow a Shell oil tanker to go through, in part because they were all the same guys, right? The right, right hand was talking right. to the left hand. Yeah. So Egypt lost control over the canal in pr practice in 1882, as the British troops came and occupied the country, uh, ostensibly on the on the basis of unpaid debts accrued because of the construction of the Suez Canal. And so from 1882 onwards, the British were really in control of, of the Suez Canal and all, all else Egyptian. And so that was quite significant. And then, yeah, you're absolutely right that until about 10 years after the Suez Canal, it really did not pay for itself. And it really wasn't a major commercial route. Um, it was primarily warships that were going through. But in part, it was also because sailing ships couldn't sail down the Suez Canal because the canal is subject to transversal winds from essentially crossing the canal. A uh, sailing ship will find it quite difficult to be able to navigate that down. And many of the commercial ships were at that stage sailing ships. So in some ways, the Suez Canal actually facilitated the conversion to steamships also, because if the ships wanted a shorter route around down the Suez Canal, then they're going to have to convert to steam. And so it had that effect as well. The tension between the commercial and the military is such an interesting one for Twain's studies, in part because he appears to be sort of torn by it during this time. At the same time, he is becoming more anti-imperialist in his politics. He is becoming a spokesperson for Standard Oil. And so he's very much caught in what we now would recognize as the, you know, the inextricability of finance capital and imperial politics. He still sees Rockefeller and Standard Oil explicitly as antagonists to Teddy Roosevelt's administration and therefore antagonist to imperialism. Those things, you know, are very hard to parse from our distance. And you mentioned the rationale that was often given for uh, imperial and colonial extraction in Africa, particularly, was that, well, we're building infrastructure. Yeah. Right? And, and this is something that Twain explicitly pokes fun of in King Leopold's soliloquy, one of his sort of most famous anti-imperialist essays. These trains, these bridges, these roads, right? They're not yeah. for the people there, right? They are not on routes that will facilitate the development of these countries. Even based on that specious rationale, they're not functional. One of the wonderful things about your book for me, thinking about this period in Twain, is that he's still trying to see capitalism as a solution to 
authoritarian politics. Yeah. And we now recognize that actually they they are far more often in collaboration than I they mean, are I in competition. I mean, I think that's, that, that is a really interesting point. And I hadn't realized that he was a spokesperson for Standard Oil, which makes me really want to go dig up whatever it was that he'd done about that. But one of the things that's interesting for me is that many of the most exciting writers that are writing in the US at the end of the 19th century have this kind of an ambivalent relationship with the process of empire and, and of course, with capitalism mm -hmm. and all of that. Even, you know, sort of Melville, who is probably my most favorite novelist writing originally in English, has that kind of an ambivalence in there. So on the one hand, he is extraordinarily astute and way ahead of his time in the way that he looks at, for example, the processes of shipping, he looks at race, he looks at imperialism. And yet at the same time, he's also inevitably celebrating something very USian in, in the ways in which he writes about sort of these ships going in other places. In stuff like White Jacket, for example, he sees in British colonialism, British Empire, something kind of outdated and to be replaced with a more progressive American version. And, and there's something really naive about this. I, and I don't want to call either Melville or Twain very naive, but there is something quite naive about this in the way that they see in the possibility of an American commercial empire, a possibility of liberation, which of course it ends up being so incredibly wrong because in some ways it's much more brutal, much right. more violent. You know, what happens in the 20th century ends up being so much more hideous than some of the things that had happened in the 19th. And so that tension, the ambivalence and the ambiguity in the works of, mm -hmm. for me, Melville is kind of the linchpin here. But even the great sort of... Uh, Poet, um, the, the, I sing. Well, Whitman. Whitman. Thank you. So Whitman has that ambivalence as well. He also traveled on a ship down the Suez Canal and he writes about the Suez Canal. He writes about the telegraph. He, he celebrates the telegraph. And there is a kind of a celebration of the technological sublime in his work, which is a very American thing. And it is one that sometimes ends up lulling the senses of these incredibly astute analysts and observers, lulling their senses into sort of accepting that there's going to be freedom in the progress, that there's going to be freedom in the technological advances. There's something really tragic yeah. in, in the real, literal sense of tragic in, in the writing. When, we, when you look at it 100 years, 150 years later at, at their work, is that is that that kind of an unfulfilled hope, uh, which never had a chance of being fulfilled because it was already always embedded in a set of new power relations. And so for me, reading the literary giants who were writing in that period about maritime transport is always incredibly rich because they see it even if they don't acknowledge it, these ambivalences, these ambiguities, the seeds of devastation that are planted there but looks like something else. There's sort of the shop of horrors thing where you first see the cute little plant and then it ends up being a monster that eats everything. And that was in part why I actually also insisted on using a lot of literary sources mm -hmm. very straightforwardly. I'm hoping that my the friends that work on literature are not offended by the fact that I sort of look at this as incredibly rich source material, but it is because it encapsulates something of the zeitgeist in a way that social scientific work that is bound by other conventions doesn't, without wanting to be too psychoanalytic about it. It captures something of the unconscious in the writing that only the very best of social scientific work can capture subconsciously, in part because of methodological reasons. That's why I also have loads of epigraphs from various authors. And now that you've told me that Twain was the spokesperson for Standard Oil, and I'm working on something on tankers, I'm going to be going and digging up Twain, man. <laughs> That was Lale Khalili of Queen Mary University of London. 
author of Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. This has been The American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Suez Canal. Thank you for listening. Thank you.